Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 and beginning in verse 13. Matthew 2.13, this is God's Word to us. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is to us. Give us now ears to hear what you intend for us to hear. Give us hearts of understanding. Make our hearts sensitive to your Holy Spirit's teaching and instruction and encouragement that we would be built up in the faith, that we would be strengthened to know All that is ours in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the joys of adulting, and by joys, I'm speaking sarcastically, um, and by adulting, I mean the newly formed verb tense of being a grown-up. One of the joys of adulting is that there are many subjects, many experiences, that you never imagined that you would encounter when you were younger, that you realize part of being an adult is facing such things. Filing taxes may be at the top of the list. I'm not talking about paying taxes. That's hard enough. I'm talking about filing taxes, like when you move beyond the 1040EZ and you realize that you need some kind of degree and understanding or you just pray you did everything right about wading through insurance policies and bureaucracies when you have the simplest of a medical procedure that should be straightforward, and yet it takes you three times the number of hours that you spend with any doctor or hospital or whatever trying to get all of that ironed out. Or how about getting your palm trees to stop frizzling? Um, That's where I am right now. If anyone has any advice on that, I've got one I can't figure out. The clumps of algae that grow in our air conditioning drains that only seem to stop up the air conditioning at 11 o'clock at night when you have to go out there with a flashlight and figure out how to unplug that. Ah, The joys of living in Florida. We'll take the warm weather, won't we? And we won't complain about air conditioning drains. Of course, there are more serious things that we have to face as grown-ups, things that we never imagined. I think of the reality of death when we come to terms with that, when we discover that that is a norm of life when you start losing people that you care about and love and then you come to terms with the fact that you will one day die 
Or you discover that you have loved ones or family members that struggle with addictions or mental illness. The time in life when you realize that people lie and misuse others for their own personal gain. Maybe you let someone borrow some money, thought they would pay it back, and you've realized over time that they never intended to make good on it. Now, there's a certain protection that we assume children don't have to face these things. And so when they do, we often grieve over that. But there's something about being an adult that you you lose that option. You lose the innocence. You lose the naivety because you're faced with it whether you want to or not. It's the ugliness of sin. And all of us have our experiences and stories of where we have seen these things, faced these things, and maybe even dealing with them right now. One example uh, for me has been with the concept of narcissism. This is something that I never imagined encountering as a young person. I might have been able to tell you what narcissism was in the simple terms like as someone who's proud or someone who's full of themselves, but I certainly didn't understand any sense of the clinical definition or understanding of it. But a few things have happened in life and ministry that have brought this issue into kind of convergence for me and have forced me to kind of face the reality of it. One and probably the greatest was having worked for someone. I'm not a psychologist. I won't diagnose anyone. But if he was not a narcissist, he certainly had those traits. And the fact that those marks are still on me and my family, and I'm still processing them. Uh, On top of that, we are hearing continual stories throughout the church of narcissistic leaders in pastoral and other ministry positions who are using the power that they have to hurt people and wound people. In addition to this, I'm reading a book, or I should say listening to a book. I get more done through audiobooks sometimes. Uh, The title of the book is When Narcissism Comes to Church, a book that I never thought would need to be written, uh, but is absolutely heartbreaking to listen to when you realize how prevalent this is. It's not a surprise to us when we think of a narcissist, and we think particularly of Herod, that we can understand why he would want to eliminate any perceived threat against his power. One of the things that has surprised me, though, in my own experience, that is not necessarily a trait, but it is common among narcissists, is they can't let you leave either. They can't let you just walk away. If you won't remain and be loyal to them, they will seek to destroy you. And what this shows us about our sinfulness, and particularly the sin of pride which is behind narcissism, is that it leads to absolute ugliness. It shows us how grievous our hearts really are, how easily we can be deceived. We're looking at Herod today. Herod is an unbeliever. And so we may approach this with some kind of thought that, oh, this would never happen to me. This could never happen to us as believers. We could never get seduced into being so awful to hurt other people intentionally or unintentionally for our own gain. And my reason with saying all that up front is that we are not immune to this as Christians. If we aren't mortifying the sin of pride, any of us, if we all aren't already on the spectrum of narcissism, and people talk about that now as a spectrum, we can certainly enter into it, be engaged in it, and be so fooled 
by our own hearts that we are wounding people without knowledge of it and awareness of it. We look at Herod's actions in the Gospel of Matthew. We see some of the traits that, again, not a psychologist won't diagnose Herod. Somebody else may have already done that. If he wasn't a narcissist, he certainly had narcissistic traits. We see the paranoia that he developed from this perceived threat. The fact that he felt threatened by an infant at all. I mean, think of his reaction to a child that was probably 6 to 18 months old and the murderous intent that he had in his heart. The need to seek out all the information through trickery and lies and cunning to put an end to this perceived threat. And then, of course, the infanticide itself, killing all of these children in an effort to maintain power, keep his position. However, there's a figure behind Herod, one who we see in other places and times, one who I would argue is not only a narcissist, but the father of narcissists. Throughout Scripture, there is a certain intentionality of Satan to destroy the work of God. And you might think that a created being would know better. <laughs> you might think that a created being would never imagine they could destroy the works of the Almighty Creator, let alone the person of the Omnipotent Creator. But sin, and in particular pride, whether it leans to the pole of arrogance or toward the pole of shame, causes us to be deluded. And Satan is certainly delusional in his attempts to, to destroy the works of God. We see it beginning in the garden where he comes and tempts Adam and Eve in an attempt to destroy the good creation God had made. If you were with us through our study of Genesis, you remember that that trend continued. The conflict, the murderous intent, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, they were fighting in the womb before they ever were born. We see how Joseph's brothers sought to kill him. In Egypt, the people of God move from favor under one pharaoh to slavery under another, and their very existence seems threatened. God delivers them. He leads them to the promised land, only for his people to succumb to the satanic lies of pagan kings through idol worship and syncretism. God raises up a king, son of Jesse, who nearly dies numerous times. Goliath, Saul, even his son Absalom sought David's life. And when this doesn't seem to work, Satan shifts his strategic angle and goes after David through temptation and nearly brings him down. Philistine invasions, Assyrian and Babylonian captivities all occur in the life of God's people. And then the Messiah is born. And what do we see? We looked at this briefly last week from our Revelation study in chapter 12. The dragon is pictured... The dragon Satan is pictured crouching before the woman about to give birth to devour her child as soon as it is born. And so Herod here now we see, succumbing to his own sinful desires and pride, he's not a robot, but he is the useful tool of Satan to attempt to destroy the work of God. Satan's attempts don't stop there. We see throughout the New Testament, we see through the, the book of Acts, the numerous accounts of the attacks against the people of God. The epistles record examples as well. In Revelation, we see the foretelling of suffering of the people of God throughout this age until Christ returns. 
And the dragon, Satan, although he is on a leash, is behind it all through his efforts and influences in the spirit of Babylon. We know not only from the persecution that we hear about around the world in our own day, not only from the assaults on Christianity in our own culture, but we know most especially in our own lives personally as we witness temptation, conflict, fractured relationships, and discouragement. You might think that's all depressing to hear about, but folks, that describes Christmas. (laughs) For many of us, at least moments, fractured relationships, conflict, discouragement, disappointment. We could throw some other things in there. Satan wants to destroy the people of God. He began it at the dawn of creation. He has continued to do it. We see it not only at the birth of Jesus, but throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. We think of the temptation in the wilderness. And now he continues that onslaught to the body of Christ, the people of Christ, us, his church. While the account of Herod's seeking to destroy the Messiah as a young child is horrific, the one who is behind Herod remains at work. And yet, this is not a story of hopelessness. Hear me out. As we will see today, and as we will focus on especially at Christmas Eve, the Savior is preserved and protected. No matter how great the threat seems, no matter how likely it seems that it will not succeed, how impossible it all appears. The Messiah is preserved to accomplish the purposes he intended. And that same preservation, that ultimate protection, is what you and I too will enjoy. Even though we face different kinds of difficulties and suffering in this life, we will be brought safely home. And God will work in the midst of the pain while we're here to bring about all that he intends. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to the heavenly Father. And that's something that when we think God's will is good or what we want or we're wishing for or whatever, that's a relatively easy thing to pray. It's a little bit harder to pray when his will is confusing, when his will doesn't make sense, when his will seems harsh or unloving, or when we can't imagine why in his perfect will he allowed something to happen. And yet we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven because we know he's good, because we know he's faithful, because we know he loves us beyond measure. So beginning in verse 13, we see in this account that Joseph is instructed to care for his family, to take them to safety. It's another visit by an angel. Again, you can see that God is, is supernaturally intending all that is going to happen. Sends a messenger angel in a dream at night, tells, tells Joseph exactly what to do. Verse 13, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He's told where to go. Joseph is even given the luxury of being told why. That's not something we always get, uh, but that's kind of nice. He knows why, that Herod is seeking to attack. And I think Joseph's given this information so that he takes seriously the need for immediate obedience to respond. And that's what's implied here because it says, in the night he got up and he took Mary and the child with him and they left. Now the location they go to is interesting, Egypt. Because if you think about Egypt, it's probably most well known, at least in the in the minds of Jewish people, for the 
400 years of slavery that they endured. And particularly, if you think about growing up Jewish, every boy and girl in a Jewish home had the Passover meal annually. And so this reinforcement of all that they had been delivered from, but actually what it was that they were delivered from, who wants to go back to Egypt? Seems like it would be a place that would stir up fear for any Israelite. But Egypt had become a place of respite, ironically, for Jews in this time. It was less hostile than any other surrounding nation, and so it had become a place of refuge. Some estimate that nearly a million Jews were living in Egypt at the time of Christ. Rome was occupying Israel, so to escape the tyranny of Rome, and in particular Herod, Egypt made a lot of sense. It was close. And so here they were, living in a country as aliens, as foreigners, and yet there was seemingly some camaraderie there. I often think of the the Rich Mullins song, My Deliverer, where he imagines Jesus being in Egypt during this time. He sings, Joseph took his wife and her child, and they went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. There, along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to the song that the captive children used to sing. They were singing, My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. That Deliverer had come. That Deliverer that the people of God had longed for through enslavement, through exile, through occupation, through suffering, through their own sin and idolatry, through all the pains and heartbreaks of life, the Deliverer had arrived. And though Satan was trying to destroy the young deliverer, the father kept him protected. We're not told how long they were there. It wasn't terribly long because with the varying ages of uh, dates of Herod's death and dates of birth of Christ, in order to have that overlap, uh, it it would be less than probably a couple years that they would have been in Egypt, maybe even less than a year. Uh, But they were to wait until they were told uh, to return, and that's what they did. But Matthew takes us back because Herod's not yet dead. He has more to tell us about Herod and how he will respond in verse 16. But before we get there, look in verse 15. Matthew tells us that this journey to Egypt fulfills a prophecy spoken, Out of Egypt I called my son. This comes from the prophet Hosea. If you remember the story of Hosea, he was the prophet who was married to a woman who was unfaithful to him. And Hosea is called to love his wife, Gomer, unconditionally. And he even went so far as to go and to buy her back from her life of prostitution and to redeem her from the place to which she fell. That, of course, served as an image for the people of God then as it does to us today. Exactly what God has done for us. That he has come and redeemed us. He has bought us out of our sin and misery In Hosea's prophecy, he describes the kind of love that God has for his people. And he explains that God had set his affections upon his people before they were even a nation. While they were in Egypt, he called them. He set his affections on them. And because he loved them, God continually delivered them and brought them along. And the reminder was built into their, their um, rhythm of worship, their liturgy. In the Ten Commandments, the preamble states, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They were to keep this in front of them again and again, that God was their deliverer. But we see in other Old Testament passages, God calls his people, my son, my firstborn, in Exodus 4. 
He says to them, you are mine in Ezekiel 16. And he calls them the apple of my eye in Zechariah 2. The context of God's eternal affection spoken prophetically by Hosea points us to God's faithfulness. And now that faithfulness is realized in its most complete way. Emmanuel, God with us. We see this over and over in prophecies, and I know I point it out every time we talk about this, but uh, you know, this is one of the things that's important to understand. There's often an immediate fulfillment of a prophecy. In this case, he's speaking of Israel being called out of Egypt. But then Christ comes and shows us there's this greater fulfillment, this ultimate fulfillment in Christ himself. He too was called out of Egypt. In the second part of this passage, we see this grievous and horrific act of Herod setting out to eliminate this perceived threat in the birth of the child. I say it is a perceived threat. I think it's falsely perceived because, one, he's an infant, a baby. How much of a threat is that? And yet we know that he's also the Son of God and the Messiah. And so who can oppose God? I mean, it seems ludicrous, but of course, Herod isn't thinking in his own right mind. He is deluded by his own sin. And because sin deludes, Herod thought he could seek to kill a wide enough range of children as to eliminate this king of the Jews who had been born, who he was told about by the wise men. Some have claimed that Herod's soldiers struck down thousands of babies. There's really not any direct uh, historical evidence for that number. Uh, most of the scholars that I've read uh, indicate numbers around 20 or less. Um, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us because it says Bethlehem in the region. And that number is based on the approximate population of Bethlehem in the region at the time. That's how that number. I saw you know, 12 to 20 uh, in the numbers that I, that I read about this week. But I want to say something about this. It doesn't matter what the number is. It in no way reduces the horror of his actions. Unfortunately, in our own time, this is often the argument people who say they are pro-life fall for when the culture wields its power over them. The culture creates straw men arguments that cause people to think that it would be better if abortions were only conducted when necessary. And yet, when is it ever necessary to take the life of another? I mean, the only biblical reason given for taking another life is never handed to the individual. It's handed to the governing authority to wield the sword against capital offenses. It's never our choice. It's never up to us individually. So do not fall for the false logic that it's okay sometimes. We need to engage and to stay engaged. Had Herod killed only one baby, it would have been horrid. Herod was an egomaniac, he developed paranoia, and then he acted from that fear to practice this infanticide, the slaughter of the most vulnerable in the nation. And here's a takeaway for all of us. Sin makes us stupid. It's probably not a word that you expect to hear in church on Sunday, and I apologize to all the parents. But I'm afraid that the word foolishness that we read in Proverbs It's translated in most of our Bibles, has an air of sophistication that just doesn't work. I'm not saying change the translation, foolish is great, but we're just not offended by the word foolish. It's almost benign in some ways. But stupid, I think that captures it. When we choose to sin, 
When we keep on sinning, when we refuse to repent, we will do stupid things. Show me a Christian who has betrayed their vows in an adulterous affair, and I will show you someone who made numerous concessions to get to that place. Find a Christian who has stolen money from their job or an organization they volunteer at, and I'll show you someone who began compromising with the numbers in small ways to begin with. Find a Christian who has built a life and reputation upon lies for their own personal gain and profit, and I'll show you someone who has allowed deception to creep into their habits until it consumes them. I say Christian here because I'm speaking to us who are believers today. We have to take sin seriously. Sin is a real battle that we are engaged in. And we are called to fight it, to mortify it, to kill it, to slay it. Because if we choose to treat it like it's a pet that won't hurt anybody, that no one knows about, that's a secret that no one needs to know about, it will consume us. We have to. To kill sin. Next, Matthew points us to the prophet Jeremiah. So here we have two prophecies that are fulfilled. Hosea, the second being Jeremiah. He explains the persecution fulfills another prophecy that was foretold. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The town of Ramah set about five miles north of Jerusalem. And it's a place that, because it's set at the border between the two divided kingdoms, it became a, a, a kind of a connection point symbolically for the Jewish reader. When they saw Ramah, they would have understood the, the grief associated with the, the division, but in particular with the exile, because since it was located at the border between the two divided nations, It served as a staging ground for the exile. This is where, if you imagine the the pictures we've all seen of the Holocaust being loaded up on the uh, railroad cars. This is, I mean, no railroads back then, but this is the image that a Jewish reader would have had of Rama when they heard that name. It's a place of lament and a place of sadness. Rachel also symbolically represents both the divided nations because she mothered both Joseph who gave birth to Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin and those are where the two split tribes or split kingdoms come from. Rachel, of course, had been dead for a long time. She's not literally weeping but she is here pictured, personified figuratively for us to see that she laments over the fact that her children are scattered, that they're carried off. She says that they are no more. But Matthew shows us that the complete fulfillment here is found in the deaths of these young children at the birth of Christ, the babies at Herod's hand. And yet, Jeremiah doesn't leave us without hope because he would later speak of Rachel's refraining from weeping. And the reason given that she stops weeping is because of a branch of righteousness, a branch of righteousness who would come to rescue his people and forgive their sins. Yahweh speaks in Jeremiah 31, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Of course, the persecution against Jesus would continue in his life. He didn't live an easy life. He faced opposition. And of course, we know that ultimately the opposition that was ordained for him to face that would lead to his death, he willingly walked into. Laying his life down for my sin 
for your sins. Just as the dragon, Satan, could not thwart the eternal plan of God through his minion Herod, neither can anything in heaven or earth separate us from the one to whom we belong. This is based solely on the work of Christ. Not our works, not our perceived goodness, not our striving. If you have never put your faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. We come with empty hands or we don't come at all. It is nothing in our hands that we bring simply to the cross we cling. We do it by faith. We trust in the one who has paid the price for our sins, dying for us. And we receive by faith what is freely offered to us in the gospel. It is all by grace. Even when we face heartache or persecution in this life, and we certainly will, we can still rejoice. As we see, the, the season of Advent is this mixture of sorrow and joy. We see the brokenness of the world, the fact that the world needs redemption, the fact that the world needs a Savior. And that's not something that we just look back historically. We're all in the midst of it right now. Every one of you are dealing with something in some way that is the effect of sin in this world. And so there's this sorrow, and yet there's this joy. And the joy has come, but we're in this now and not yet. We're not fully realized, and so there's this tension that we feel. And yet we can rejoice because he holds our very existence in his hands. Just as Satan has never been able to thwart the plans of God. Look throughout history. He's tried over and over and over again. God has preserved his purposes and his plans and his people. We are his. He calls us his own. He calls us the apple of his eye. We are precious. Jeremiah also spoke. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. This is our hope. May we as Christian men and women rejoice because Jesus has come, that we may hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. He has opened heaven's door, and man is blessed forevermore. We need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. Let's pray. Father, would you thread the needle between this sorrow and grief that we walk through and the joy that is ours in Christ. May we never be so overcome by the sorrows that we we fail to realize We have so many more reasons to rejoice, to have hope and expectation, to be filled with joy even when life doesn't make sense, to know that one day the merriment and gladness that we will know will erase all of the sadness. Everything sad will become untrue. We long for that day, Lord. We long for that day until it comes as we're in this tension now. Would you strengthen our hope? May we look back to the assurance of not only that Christ came and was born and accomplished all that he did in our salvation, but the assurance that he is now sitting at your right hand, interceding for us, our mediator, our advocate. We're never alone. You've given us your spirit. We're not left to our own strength, our own devices, our own wisdom, our own ways. 
Lord, you are with us. Would you fill us with that hope that we may walk through these days ahead full of joy and expectant that we know the Deliverer has come and He holds us in His hand. Would you strengthen our hearts with that truth and fill us with joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.